0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Pratt Library and to the Poe Room. It's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Michael Ross here this evening. And we're also very happy to have C-SPAN here taping this event with, uh, for the Book TV. And when we get to the Q&A session, we'll ask that you go over to the microphone there and uh, ask your question from there so that everyone uh, around the country will be able to hear it. Uh, Michael Ross's new book is called The Great New Orleans Kidnapping Case, Race, Law, and Justice in the Reconstruction Era. It tells the story of the now forgotten case of Molly Digby, a 17-month-old who was kidnapped from in front of her home uh, in New Orleans in 1870. This was at the height of Reconstruction when race tensions were high. Dr. Ross uses the Digby kidnapping investigation and trial to provide new insights into the complexities of the Reconstruction era. Michael Ross is associate professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park, where he teaches courses on American legal history and the Civil War era. He is the author of the prize-winning book, Justice of Shattered Dreams, Samuel Freeman Miller, and the Supreme Court during the Civil War era. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Ross.
1: Hi, good, good evening. Uh, it's very nice to be here at the Enoch Pratt Library in the Poe Reading Room, surrounded by pictures of Edgar Allan Poe and books about Poe, uh, and uh, Baltimore in many ways has a feel a lot like uh, uh, New Orleans, an old port city with traditions and a quirky and sometimes spooky history. And uh, I always kind of feel at home in Baltimore just as I feel at home in New Orleans, uh, and uh, where I lived for 10 years. And what I want to do tonight uh, is introduce you to this case that has uh, uh, kind of disappeared from the American memory, but uh, at least for the summer of 1870, uh, captivated uh, the nation, newspaper readers across the country, and try to explain it to you. uh, So that you could see what I saw as I stumbled across it. I began uh, writing, uh, I I found this story while I was doing much more traditional uh, legal history. I was researching the famous slaughterhouse cases, the first case where the Supreme Court interpreted the 14th Amendment. And I was reading every single day of the New Orleans newspapers in 1870. And suddenly, there's this story about a white baby being abducted by two African-American women and the rumor begins to circulate that the baby has been abducted for use as a voodoo sacrifice. And I was just like, holy smokes, what, what, what could that possibly be uh, about? Is that true or is that just the press telling a story? You know, the New Orleans newspapers, after all, talked about ghost sightings and such things. And as I was doing my other research, I just started to follow along. And the story picked up steam, and the police are arresting voodoo practitioners, and and suddenly there's all these other implications tied with the politics of Reconstruction, and I I realized I had stumbled onto something really quite interesting. So what I want to do tonight is show you what interested me so much. This is New Orleans, around the time of 1870, and the Digby family were Irish immigrants who had come uh, with the great wave of famine Irish back in the late 1840s. Uh, and Thomas and Bridget Digby lived in a swampy area known as the Back of Town. In the Back of Town, was this is Lake Pontchartrain, and it's kind of back in here, and it's, it was a low rent district because it flooded all the time. And it was a place where people of different races and immigrant backgrounds all lived on top of one another. And uh, it is here that on a summer evening in 1870... Uh, the Digby children are playing out in the street, and a neighboring teenager is watching them, and two African-American women come by and uh, coo over the Molly Digby, the, the child, and eventually the teenager allows these women to hold the baby, and then she goes off because there's a fire down the block to look at the fire, and these women leave with the child. And in a crime-filled city, this normally, and particularly in a poor neighborhood, this would have ended up on the, on the second or third page of the paper in the city intelligence columns, where every day there was murders and knifings and all kinds of things going on, and would have disappeared into the midst into the mist, until it gets entangled in the fearsome politics of reconstruction. This is uh, where that neighborhood is today, the Digby's back-of-town street the old Howard Street, is actually the street you walk down as you enter the Superdome to go to Saints football games. The whole neighborhood torn down in urban redevelopment uh, plans in the 50s and 60s. So when I lived there, every time I went to a Saints game, I was walking down the street of my story, and while other people were getting ready for game time, I was haunted by the story. Here's the kind of thing I saw in the newspaper. This is actually from the Mobile paper reporting the events in New Orleans, but you'll see what it says A horrible suspicion is connected in the public mind with the abduction of infant child of Mr. Digby, which took place on the 9th of June. And the 9th of June is important to this story because two weeks later was St. John's Eve. And St. John's Eve is a sacred night in the voodoo religion, and uh, voodoo practitioners consider themselves to be Catholics. They're practicing a syncretic version of African religions and Catholicism. And on St. John's Eve, they would have ceremonies out on Lake Pontchartrain. Well, the uh, newspapers of New Orleans are now going to allege that Molly Digby has been abducted for use as a voodoo sacrifice at the St. John's Eve ceremonies. And you see later down in the article, the impenetrable secrecy in which the cruel deed is involved has excited a general suspicion that the child was stolen for sacrifice according to the rites of voodooism, which it is charged are prevalent among Negroes in Louisiana. And it is true, voodooism uh, of the pra- practicing of voodoo was a flourishing religion in 19th century Louisiana and during slavery times it was kind of kept under wraps because slave owners found it threatening, but when the Civil War ends, voodoo practitioners can practice out in the open and this lends to whites' fears that their society is being turned upside down. This would be a, this is a depiction of a voodoo ceremony that isn't too critical but this is the next one is the one that you would see more often kind of sensationalized depictions this is out of a New Orleans newspaper superstition depravity and lust locked arms at a voodoo dance that they were at the time and again this, you might write this off as just a sensational story But I very quickly realized, particularly from the newspapers that were highlighting it, that the story was being used by the conservative white press. And by conservative, I mean people at the time who were opposed to Reconstruction. Many of them were ex-Confederates, former Democrats and Whigs, who were uh, appalled that the North, backed by federal bayonets, had created Reconstruction governments in the South where African-American men could vote, where about a third of the Louisiana legislature was African-American, where African-Americans are serving in government positions, serving on juries, and in New Orleans on the police force. The Reconstruction governor integrates the New Orleans police force. These are African-American members of the Louisiana legislature during Reconstruction. And they were about a third of the membership of that body. Here's African pictures of African-American men in Louisiana voting uh, after the Military Reconstruction Act of 1867, and then the 15th Amendment. And here is a black policeman in New Orleans, a couple of depictions of black policemen in New Orleans. And you can see the caption from uh, the man who wrote this book, who was a northerner at the time, who said the polite but consequential Negro policeman, that there were African-American policemen on the street with full authority to arrest white people. <coughs> For many whites in New Orleans, it was almost too much to bear. A world turned upside down in a very short time because of the Civil War. This is a critical depiction of the New Orleans legislature, uh, of the Louisiana legislature at the time, where the critics of the legislature depicted it as a place where former slaves, in from the fields, illiterate, elected to office, run amuck in the legislature, along with poor uh, uh, whites from the from the uh, dirt parishes in the and and the north of Louisiana, who they called scalawags, and this is a depiction that will later be depicted in the movie *Birth of a Nation*, and still haunts the American imagination that somehow the Reconstruction legislatures were places where, uh, uh, that, where things had gone awry. So as this case gets sensationalized, as the white press is arguing, this is what we can expect. Now that African-Americans are free from slavery, over 10,000 move from the plantations into the cities, Now that there's black policemen on the street who they suspect will wink and nod when uh, black people commit crimes against white people, the uh, newspapers will start to demand that the Reconstruction governor solve this crime. And in particular, they're going to listen to the calls that this crime be solved by the elite white women of New Orleans, the wives of the most prominent cotton factors and financiers in the city who are going to adopt the Digby case as their own, and travel to the back of town bringing baked goods to the Digby's house in a neighborhood they normally would never go. They would be in their French Quarter townhouses and the Garden District mansions, and marching to the home of the Reconstruction governor, demanding that he solve the crime. And I just want to read you a paragraph uh, from the book, a short reading from the book, uh, as, uh, to give you some sense of how the book is written about these activities by elite women and why I found it so interesting. As the coverage of the Digby abduction became more sensational, prominent white women from the most famous New Orleans families adopt, adopted the Digby case as their own. In late June and early July, wealthy women of New Orleans would usually be preparing to leave town for cooler climes. Just as many theaters and restaurants closed for the season each summer, elite families put linen covers on furniture, packed white dresses, suits, and Panama hats into trunks, and set off by rail and steamboat for the coast, the north, or Europe. But in 1870, Mathilde Ogden, Armitene Ayan, Louisa Huger, and wives of dozens of the city's other richest financiers, merchants, and cotton factors took time to march to police headquarters to demand resolution of the Digby case. They also went en masse to the back of town, a neighborhood they'd normally avoided, bringing food and other gifts to the Digby's modest house. By intertwining themes of motherhood, crime, and race, the Digby case provided an opportunity for the city's elite women to enter the public debate over Reconstruction and to express publicly their anger at Governor Warmoth, his biracial police force, and the emerging racial order in Louisiana. Raised in a culture that required them to behave as traditional ladies, most elite women left public commentary on politics, business, and civic affairs to men. But in early July, 61 prominent women presented a petition to Governor Warmoth urging him to do something so that, quote, the painful feeling of the community in regard to this lawless outrage may be allayed by the early restoration of the child to those who love it. The press applauded the petition made to the governor by Our Ladies and demanded that Warmouth offer a state reward for Molly's return. This is the Reconstruction governor of Louisiana, 28-year-old Henry Clay Warmouth, a former Union soldier elected to office largely by the votes of African-American men. His critics thought he was far too young to be governor. They dubbed him the boy governor. But he believed that he was actually doing God's work. There's this image of uh, the Northerners who were in the South after the Civil War where they're called carpetbaggers, that they were there just to make themselves rich and to exploit the populace and the votes of so-called ignorant Negroes uh, in order for their own uh, gain. But Warmouth actually believes in what some people have called the Republicans' gospel of prosperity. He believed... That if these Republican governments could build public schools, repair the levees, finish the railroads, uh, macadamize the roads, and bring all kinds of improvements, that they could lure into the Republican fold uh, uh, economically minded businessmen who would realize that the Republicans were doing things that they had long called for. And that they might be willing to put racial animosity aside in return for economic development. This is Warmoth's goal, and he is uh, desperately wants to prove that his new integrated New Orleans police force can solve this crime. And he accepts the petition. He puts up a state reward for the return of Molly Digby that eventually goes up to $5,000, about $40,000 today, which is a lot of money after the Civil War. It's going to turn the Digby case into the Powerball of 1870 as everyone who sees an African-American nanny with a white baby thinks they found the kidnappers of Molly Digby. And he has a group on his side that is going to make New Orleans and perhaps Mobile The places where many historians argue if Reconstruction was ever going to succeed, here it had the best chance. And the group in New Orleans that I speak of uh, are the Afro-Creoles. And the Afro-Creoles are a very interesting group, largely in Louisiana and Mobile. They emerge from the uh, culture of French colonial Louisiana, where wealthy white men, often had uh, uh, romantic uh, uh, relationships with mixed race and black women. And in this situation, uh, when children were born, the white fathers, while they couldn't marry uh, uh, the women, uh, made sure that their children had a start in life, make sure they had money, make sure they got an education. They'd attend their uh, baptisms at St. Louis Cathedral and other places. And as a result, there's a class of free persons of color before the Civil War who are going to continue on in leadership roles after the war that you don't normally think of when you think of the slave South. And I want to take a moment and just read to you from the book about the Afro-Creoles so you understand why they're so important and why... Warmoth is going to have the majority of his police force made up of Afro-Creoles, the majority of elected black officials in Louisiana are Afro-Creoles, because they are a polished class of people who could put the lie to uh, reactionary whites' arguments that African Americans were too ignorant and illiterate to join in government. Let me uh, explain this uh, to you. Uh, well, let me add one point, just so this makes sense. What Warmuth is going to do is to prove that his police force can solve this case. Is that he's going to have his police chief choose his best Afro-Creole detective, the first black detectives in American history, to be the lead detective in the Digby case. And the detective that he chooses is a man named Jean Baptiste Jordan who was a cigar maker from the French Quarter, but who comes out of this free person of color class and uh, then joins the Union Army when he gets the chance and then becomes a detective in the police force. And Jean-Baptiste Jourdan, our Afro-Creole detective, who is in some ways the protagonist of my story, I'm going to now place him within the context of his Afro-Creole heritage. As a Creole of color, or Afro-Creole, Detective Jourdan belonged to a class of mixed-race men and women unique to the Gulf Coast. Although the term Creole had different meanings in different societies, in colonial Louisiana, anyone born in the colony was called a Creole. Over time, Louisianians, black and white, who identified with French culture and language and feared being overwhelmed by the American parvenus who arrived in New Orleans after the Louisiana Purchase, self-identified as Creoles. Afro-Creoles of Jordan's class considered themselves to be cosmopolitan gentlemen and ladies. Bilingual and mannerly, they looked to Paris for aesthetic inspiration. Many elite Afro-Creole men wore stylish silk pants, leather slippers, and fine jackets. They dined with silver utensils, filled their homes with books and mahogany furniture, attended the opera, published their own newspaper, studied classical literature, formed exclusive Masonic lodges, and drew inspiration from the egalitarian ideals of the French Revolution. Their ranks included writers, poets, painters, sculptors, and composers, as well as doctors, merchants, and skilled artisans. Although they constituted only 7% of the South's free black population in 1860, Louisiana's Afro-Creoles held almost 60% of all the real estate owned by the region's free black people. Even under the slave regime, Creoles of color took great pride in the Francophone identity they shared with white Creoles. Both white and black Creoles practiced Gallic Catholicism, read French language periodicals and relished wine, food served with rich sauces, and French colonial architecture. White Creoles patronized black Creole butchers, grocers, tailors, carpenters, masons, and mechanics. They attended plays, cockfights, and circuses together, albeit on a segregated basis. And you get the idea. And Jean-Baptiste Jourdan comes out of this class. And again, what Warmouth wants to prove is that the New Orleans police force had been previously a, uh, largely a group of thugs. And every mayor that came in would turn the police force into uh, his private army, appointing uh, their supporters. And in the 1850s, when the Know-Nothings controlled New Orleans, the anti-immigrant party, they filled the police force with kind of thugs who would beat up the Irish and the Germans And right after the Civil War, where briefly the ex-Confederates take control, they fill it up with uh, the men from Henry Hayes' brigade that charged up the hill at Gettysburg, but who were, uh, uh, you know, kind of virulently anti-Reconstruction. And when Reconstruction begins, the police force now will get Afro-Creoles along with white officers who are committed to Reconstruction, and the mannerly educated, polished, well-dressed Detective Jordan is exactly the person that Warmouth wants leading this investigation. Images of white and black Creoles strolling in New Orleans after a matinee. And this is the police chief of New Orleans whose job it is to direct Jordan and the other detectives in this investigation. Algernon Sidney Badger, uh, interesting to a Baltimore audience, he was part of the Massachusetts regiment that arrived on Pratt Street at the beginning of the Civil War uh, in response to Lincoln's call for volunteers that's attacked by a Baltimore mob, and they have to fight their way across uh, the city. And uh, Badger was a member of that regiment, so he knew how fearsome uh, resistance uh, could be. One quick sidelight, and I had hoped he would even play more role in the story. Jordan is my lead detective. One other detective that uh, plays an early role in the case, but then some reason vanishes, I just have to mention because it's so much fun, uh, is a detective named Jordan Noble, who's 72 years old. He was Andrew Jackson's drummer boy in the War of 1812. He's African-American and goes on to be the drummer boy as a white, New Orleans forces go and fight in the Seminole Wars and in the Mexican War uh, and then uh, becomes an officer in the uh, uh, Union Army uh, during the Civil War and then becomes a detective. And early on, he and, and, and Jordan go in disguise into black neighborhoods to try to get evidence dressed as like common laborers. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, Jordan doesn't continue on in his prominent role in Jordan, who's my my guy. But Badger is is directing the case. And again, people are now looking for any African-American woman who is seen with a white baby. And all over New Orleans and the South, that had been uh, the condition of things uh, through all time. So everyone who now sees... Uh, An African-American woman with a white baby goes running to the police saying, I know where Molly Digby is. I want to collect the reward. So the newspaper fills with leads. Leads come in from Cincinnati, all over the place. At one point, they actually there was a, a traveling psychic in town. And this is an era where many people, including President Lincoln, who had had seances, Mary Todd Lincoln had him in seances in the White House to raise their dead son. They have a clairvoyant. Uh, who claims after a seance that she knows exactly where Molly Digby is. I'll let you read and find out uh, what happens. And uh, so you understand, this is, this is what engaged me. So you know, I'm reading like kind of dry stuff that you would be interested in, the, you, the, the, the traditional legal, looking for traditional constitutional cases, and suddenly I'm sucked into this story. <laughs> and I, I didn't know it was going to be years before I'd, I'd come out of it. These are homes standing in uptown New Orleans uh, uh, at a street corner called Bell Castle and Camp. They are stand across the street from homes uh, that are, were central to my story since torn down but look exactly like those buildings would have looked. And this is what I want to tell you. I'm not going to tell you tonight what happens to Molly Digby. I want you to read the book to find out. I will tell you who the Republican Reconstruction government eventually accuses of having committed the crime. Mm -hmm. And they eventually commit of having accused of of committing the crime two Afro-Creole sisters, one who lived in Mobile and one who lived in the houses across the street from Meads. And those sisters ran a very interesting business They were uh, proprietors in both cities of lying-in hospitals. And what that meant was they were places where when wealthy white women got pregnant in difficult circumstances, out of wedlock, they could go to one of the sisters' houses and spend the time there during their pregnancy and then have the baby outside of prying eyes. So if a woman from a plantation family in Mobile, in Alabama... Got in trouble. The sister in Mobile, Louisa Murray, would bring uh, the woman to her sister in uptown New Orleans, and the reverse was true. If a fancy, a fine New Orleans family uh, a woman got in trouble, she would go to Mobile. And the reason why they were able to pull this business off is because these both of these women have exquisite taste. When at their trial, all the papers do is fawn over what they're wearing how beautiful their hair is, how strikingly beautiful these women are, uh, and uh, how their homes were filled with rosewood furniture and paintings. So these were pl- this is kind of an interesting business model where these women, uh, in a world where there were limited uh, career possibilities for African-American women, could use their refined afro Creole sensibility uh, to create a special niche in the economy of lying in hospitals. And it is these women that get accused of the crime. And the trial is in many ways uh, what you think of as a classic uh, southern courtroom drama, standing room crowds in a sweltering courtrooms fanning themselves. Uh, but unlike the trials that you know from real life uh, and uh, stories like To Kill a Mockingbird, where the outcome of the trial is uh, predestined, Reconstruction makes this trial so complex that in many ways it is nothing like what a trial... Had the same trial happened shortly thereafter during the era of Jim Crow, you know these women would get convicted. But what makes this trial so compelling is that you have an integrated jury. There are uh, uh, at least three Afro-Creole men on the jury. So uh, a hung jury is a possibility. You have once these women are accused of this crime by the Republican government, old lions of the uh, Confederate bar, uh, including Theodore Gallier Hunt, who had been a Confederate general, uh, sign up to defend them. So you've got uh, this unique world where the Republican government, which is the government committed to integration, is trying to convict these women who uh, they, they think are guilty of the crime in order to prove that their police force works but at the same time, it's, they're going after two African-American women in a way that when you know the history of Southern trials, uh, you're like, uh-oh. So it's a very complicated situation, and it makes the verdict uh, one in doubt right until the moment when the foreman stands up uh, in the final trial, which takes place against the backdrop of the Mardi Gras parades uh, to announce the verdict. And, you, you, you know, the whole time, I'm, I, I was just like, has anyone ever written about this? And I went and looked, and no one's ever written about this story. It's, this is the first time this story has been told. That's, uh, I'm doing the wrong thing. This is the, uh, hang, on, we'll, hang on, let me go back a little. That's the courtroom where the trial took place. But I also want to, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is, there we go. This is a headline as the story begins to unfold. The Associated Press puts the story out on the AP wire. So both the investigation and the trials all make national news. The New York Times, everyone who's reading in the North trying to figure out if Reconstruction is going to work is following the Digby kidnapping, much in the way... Uh, today, as we look for good news in America's efforts to reconstruct other nations, you look for stories of successful public schools or something to tell you that this is actually working, people are searching for examples and here we've got this glamorous Afro-Creole detective and the, the, the uh, you know, a dashing young governor trying to show uh, an efficient police force and this story is being read all over the country. And so at one level, I want the story to be a whodunit. I want the story to be one where you're waiting to find out what happens to Molly Digby. You're waiting to find out if these women get convicted. But I also want it to be a story that will interest people in that, uh, uh, in that narrative, but at the same time, get them interested in Reconstruction by building the context of re- about Reconstruction. Some people of, uh, let's say, who went to public schools before 1954, let's say, uh, were raised in a world where their elementary school textbooks, North and South, gave the Southern version of Reconstruction, that it was a tragic era of carpetbaggers and scala- scalawags run amuck. You, Many of you are familiar with the movie Gone with the Wind and the famous scenes where the over plantation overseer becomes a scalawag and African-American carpetbaggers, and this is from Gone with the Wind, home from the lost adventure came the tattered cavaliers. Grimly they came hobbling back to the desolation that had once been a land of grace and plenty. And with them came another invader, more cruel and vicious than any they had fought, the carpetbagger. And the carpetbagger, he's holding a carpetbag in the movie, is allegedly someone, uh, 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 carpet bags were were, uh, in the era of railroad travel, a cheap bag made of carpet remnants that you could, so if you didn't have a lot of money, you could easily buy your luggage made out of carpet and who had no money and came down to the South backed by federal troops to exploit the white South. And the story that historians have been telling since the 1960s, but still hasn't managed to remove root and branch, the old vision and the American memory is that the carpetbaggers, the free men, uh, uh, the free persons who serve, it's a much more complex story. There are some examples of corruption, but there's lots of them who believe they're really, uh, uh, they're kind of evangelicals of northern progress who really think they're bringing needed change to the south. And my story kind of helps reinforce that. And I hope to get people to read the book who may be still wedded to the old visions of reconstruction and will get a more complex view. And again... I'm not doing anything uh, novel here. The alternative vision of Reconstruction as a noble experiment that failed um, it begins with W.E.B. Du Bois back at the turn of the century, but then it picks up steam with the work of Eric Foner and John Hope Franklin and Kenneth Stamp, and you know, there's been American Experience documentaries. And somehow, it, it doesn't sink in. Go to the Amazon reviews of my book, uh, and there's one reader after another says, wow, this isn't the story of Reconstruction we were taught in school. And it, it, so the, somehow despite all of this work of historians, either people still are wedded to the old view or they don't know anything about it. You know, ask, I, you know I like uh, uh, people who love the Civil War and you know, I often go out and I see the reenactments and I talk to everybody and they know every last detail of the Battle of Antietam and which flanking maneuver went where, but then you ask them what happened after the war and they don't know anything. And uh, it's kind of there's like this disconnect. The Civil War is important, and we need to know every detail. But what happens afterwards? It seems murky. I don't really what I hear. I don't like, so we're going to ignore it. And I think it's an extraordinarily compelling time. And I'm hoping uh, my book, where I'm trying to tell the story as a lived experience on the ground, brings that to life. This is uh, on the left is Harold uh, Beckay. And uh, what I want to do now, as as I'll start wrapping this uh, talk up, is when I started writing this story, I thought I was the only person alive who knew anything about it, because no one had ever written about it before, it was completely forgotten, none of my colleagues in, in history departments knew anything about it. And then, as I started giving conference papers and other things, I started to get these emails, And I got an email from a woman named uh, 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 Isabel Baquet in Atlanta, who is the family genealogist of the Baquet family, who turns out to be a famous New Orleans family. And in tracing her genealogy back, had realized that her family are descendants of Detective Jordan and his father, Jean-Baptiste Victor Jordan. And Isabel and I started doing all the research to put meat onto the bones of these figures who had left very little historical uh, footprint, And when you get into the history of Afro-Creole families, it is extraordinarily complex and uh, uh, rich, and it takes tons of work to get the story just right. And I'm uh, uh, pleased that I've become friends with Isabel and her uncle Wayne, who have the famous New Orleans Creole restaurant family, Uh, uh, and one of the other famous brothers is Dean Bequet, who's now the executive editor of the New York Times from New Orleans, And next week, I'll be in New Orleans at their Creole restaurant, Little Dizzy's, where we're having a book event with the descendants of Detective Jordan, the first African-American detective in history to make national news. On the right are descendants of the Digby family, of which there are many who are going to be coming to events as well. And uh, these are uh, members of the Digby family, uh, Susan uh, Golden-Perkins and Gary Golden and others, who live in Cary, North Carolina, which, as you might know, is a place where people have moved from all over the country because there's jobs in North Carolina. I think the acronym for Cary is City That Attracts Relocated Yankees. <laughs> but it's also Relocated New Orleanians. And these are two people who are two groups that were descended from the Digby's, didn't know each other, lived within a couple of miles of one another in Cary, North Carolina. <laughs> and uh, we, I got them all together at a house, and they all pulled out these documents box full of family documents and everything that came out of the box I'm like no way no way and this story has been kept alive they there's uh, all kinds of elaborate family theories about who orchestrated the kidnapping plot and why which you'll read about in the book and so I got in touch I, I, I met them as well and then I got an email Uh, from a woman named uh, Sandra Gunther Clark and her father, Jerry, up in New York. And Sandra was working at a a, a business down near Wall Street and was in a stylish apartment on Union Square. And it turns out they are descendants of the accused women. And I went up to visit them, and they had also discovered... This is the golden age of genealogical research, thanks to all the digitized records. Uh, And it turns out that what happened with their family is that after this case ends, ends, many of the children of these women who were mixed-race Afro-Creole women moved to the North, to Detroit, Cincinnati, New York, and passed for white. Because in the era of Jim Crow, getting out from the stigma uh, of all these laws, there's much more economic opportunity for someone who passes at white in what historians have called the Great Age of Passing. And over time, the family didn't know they had African-American ancestors. And in doing the genealogical research, Jerry Gunther, who lives in Wisconsin, and uh, Jerry and and, and daughter Sandra in New York, found out that they have African-American relatives and were fascinated by it. So the story, and it's the memory of the story, and the people who have stumbled into the story was very much alive. And I didn't know that until I wrote it, but it's one of the things that makes history so much fun when you have these moments where you're just like, holy, holy cow. That's Wayne Baquet, who's, that's his restaurant, Little Dizzy's, a famous Creole restaurant in New Orleans who will be hosting me next week. Oh, and in any case, Harold, the photographer, uh, uh, very quickly, uh, was a photographer in New Orleans who I had contracted to take pictures for the book through a grant I'd received before I realized that Baquet's had any connection to the book. So suddenly my photographer... Harold Bacquet is a descendant of the detective and he's, docu- he's documenting scenes from his own family's history. This is what's one of the things the press has put out. Uh, but I'm hoping that in addition to being a whodunit that you'll enjoy reading, you'll also see the importance of the history and the, and the, and the layers of it and the, and the courtroom... Uh, uh, logistics, etc. I try to tell the story as a lived experience, which is what uh, I th- hope a good micro-history does. So I have in a lot of things hanging out there, but the answers to anything you're still asking are in this book. But I'm happy to answer uh, any uh, questions from the from the audience.
0: Well, I know that you don't want to necessarily drop a cliffy, but three questions. Number one, did they ever find the girl? Can't tell you. Okay, that answered that question. Number two, the um, Creole African Creole women who were um, accused, um, what white families were they descended from? Uh,
1: they were descended from the fathers, the fathers, let me put it this way. As far as we can ascertain, they are descendants of uh, 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 Augustine Fallen who came to the United States uh, from Haiti during the, uh, uh, after the Haitian Revolution. A lot of Haitian slave owners, but as well as kind of the mixed race class, moved uh, move to North America and settled in Mobile. And as far as we can glean, they're descended from that class, but they're deeply immersed in the Afro-Creole class of those two cities and their traditions.
0: And the third question, is your book going to be turned into an audiobook?
1: It's a good question. Uh, Oxford University Press, if you're watching, please turn my book into an audio book. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Were you able to get the court records of the actual trial? They still exist? Excellent, excellent question. Many some some of the key pieces of the court records were missing, but other parts, good parts, were there. Uh, what I found is that the court uh, stenographers, such as they were, basically summarized what was going on. It would be, and really, the best blow-by-blow accounts are in, from all of the reporters who I don't know how they did it because it's clearly different reporters at each of New Orleans' seven newspapers creating these transcripts, and each one's just different enough that you know somebody different is transcribing it, mm-hmm. but similar enough to know that they're all there. And they manage to take down these blow-by-blow accounts that run the next day in the newspapers. And those were really the best sources for what went on in the courtroom. As And the court records are good, lots of data about where witnesses lived and you know, good official mm-hmm. data. Uh, But the the newspaper transcripts were really the ones that brought the scenes to, to life.
0: Thank you. What impact did this case have on the relationship between the Creoles of color, the free Creoles, and the white community?
1: Allison, can you quickly state that you're a New Orleanian? And I'm a New Orleanian. And a descendant of an Afro-Creole family.
0: Yes, I am. Yeah. Allison Pepin, yes. Yes,
1: thank you. And, and the question again?
0: So the question is again was, did this case, what um, this case what relationships uh, did change from the Afro Creoles and the, the white population in the city? All right,
1: here's the, the tricky part. Uh, there is a lot of mutual respect between the white Creoles and Afro Creoles in New Orleans that is deeply strained by the fact that so many Afro Creoles fight in the Union ranks, because <laughs> most of the white Creoles, including the famous General Pierre Gustave Touton Beauregard, fight for the Confederacy. And then continues to be deeply strained when the Afro Creoles join the Reconstruction governments. Yet you can still see in the trial transcripts, in their relationships, because they're related, you know, there's still this mutual respect, this mutual pride in their Francophone traditions. What's going to happen, and I don't know that this case is the cause of it, mm-hmm. but after Reconstruction fails, and white supremacy is restored in Louisiana as in the rest of the South. There is a push comes to shove moment as Jim Crow descends, where many non-Creole whites uh, say to the Afro-Creoles, you know, you're know, you either with us, say to the white Creoles, you're mm-hmm. either with us or against us. Mm-hmm. You're, you're intermingling and everything is against every kind of rule that we're trying to put in here. And white Creoles begin to distance themselves from their Afro-Creole uh, compatriots. And we get this, ter- I, I will get email from this uh, televised lecture with people arguing over the word Creole. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm sure it, you will. <laughs> what, it, what it means, who can claim it, etc. I've given you my version of that, but mm-hmm. it's a very, uh, it's still a very contested word. Uh, and, uh, but I would argue that through the Reconstruction period, It's not clear that that split is going to happen. There's a brief moment where something happens called the Louisiana Unification Movement where some white elite businessmen, including General Beauregard, convince a number of elite Afro-Creole leaders to say they will abandon the Republican Party, join them in a new party committed to business called the Louisiana Unification Movement, and that the so-called best men of Louisiana will now rule It completely collapses as the white Creole uh, members are lambasted by uh, non-Creoles for doing it. Beauregard doesn't show up at their big meeting. Things completely fall apart, and that's probably the last moment where some sort of coalition could have worked.
0: Okay, thank you. Great, thank you.
1: Other questions?
0: Right. So my question is: At the end of your book, you discuss something about the coincidence between what you're researching and where you were at the time. Can you explain that? Yeah.
1: Again, uh, I was mentioning we're in the Edgar Allan Poe room, and I'm not much of a believer in the supernatural. But those houses I showed you earlier there are across the street from the home of the women that are accused. Uh, I found this story while I was living at, with my wife Ashley at 5229 Camp Street, and 5229 uh, Camp Street, and and, and you know, I, I began with the story of voodoo kidnapping, and then we got to I found where these women who were uh, accused were operating this line in, in hospital, 5229 Camp Street is across the street from these houses on the exact site where those women ran their lying-in hospital, and a good portion of my story took place. And I'm sitting in my study looking out at the houses they would have looked at it on the very site where they lived, realizing that somehow I've stumbled into the case in which these women are the central characters, and I started drinking. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it seemed like a remarkable Coincidence, and it is just that—a coincidence. But it was uh, in a city that's sort of uh, spooky. Uh, it's kind of an uncanny moment. Thank you. Any any other questions? Okay. Well, thank you. You've been a, a great audience. And uh, feel free to email me ma ross at umd.edu with your comments on the book as you uh, read it. I would love love to hear from you.